Welcome to the AM Global Podcast Series addressing business concerns we face today. In this podcast series, AM's Healthcare Industry Group co head, Peter Urbanowitz, is joined by Dr. David Shulkin, the ninth secretary of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, and Jennifer Bell, founder of Chamber Hills Strategies, to discuss the direction and policy changes we may anticipate in healthcare under the Biden administration. Presidential election and a new administration always brings a level of uncertainty about health policy changes. The fact that this change in administration has taken place during a pandemic that changed large parts of the economy and the healthcare system adds to the uncertainty. Fortunately, we have two great guests with us today to unravel the uncertainty and help us navigate the likely direction of health policy under the administration of President Joe Biden. I'm Peter Banowitz, the co-head of Alvarez and Marsal's Healthcare Industry Group. I have with me today former Veteran Affairs Secretary David Shulkin and Jennifer Bell of Chamber Hill Strategies. Dr. Shulkin has a remarkable career in healthcare, having served as chief executive of leading hospitals and health systems. In 2015, Dr. Shulkin was nominated by President Barack Obama to serve as Undersecretary for Health of the VA. In 2017, he was nominated by President Trump to be the ninth secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. He was unanimously confirmed by the Senate for both nominations. Jennifer Bell is the founding partner of Chamber Hill Strategies. Named one of the top lobbyists by the Hill newspaper, she has over 20 years of experience in advocacy and policy development. Jennifer served as majority policy advisor for the Senate Finance Committee for Chairman Chuck Grassley, and she worked for the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions under then-Chairman Jim Jeffords. David and Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. David, I want to start with you. You served as a Cabinet Secretary, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, under two very different presidents. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that. As of last week, we finally have a new HHS Secretary, Javier Becerra. In your experience, David, what makes for an effective cabinet secretary and what will make Secretary Becerra effective? Well, thanks for having me on, Peter. You know, I don't think that there's any real preparation for being a cabinet secretary. There might be some jobs that are close to it, but I think the real challenge of being in the cabinet and for me was recognizing that you have more than one job. I actually thought of what I did as a cabinet secretary as five jobs. And a successful cabinet secretary has to learn how to balance and in some ways juggle those jobs. First of all, the secretary has to create the vision for the agency. There's actually an expectation on January 20th when the old political appointees and the secretary leaves that a new secretary is gonna come in and establish where that department's going. The second is a pure operational one. You're running very, very large budgets. At the VA, I ran a $220 billion a year budget. Uh, Secretary Becerra is gonna be responsible for over a trillion dollars of spend each year. The third job is your internal management of your employees. Uh, again, at the VA, I had over 400,000 employees Secretary Becerra is going to have employees all across the country, hundreds of thousands, where that's a pretty significant management job. 
the fourth and can't forget this is this is a political job and you have to make sure that you're paying attention not only to Congress, the 435 members, but to the executive branch uh, and the White House. And that takes a lot of your time attention. And then finally, your external audiences, the press, the public, the people that you serve, the American citizens. And so the ability to juggle all five of those jobs and make sure that you're not forgetting to do one of those jobs is really the key, I think, to success. David, I think that's a great summary of how difficult it is to be a cabinet member. And uh, and you have to do all those five things within 24 hours every day and manage to get what two hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, these are these are demanding jobs. Absolutely. Jennifer, you know, we've got some really heavy hitter policy experts in the White House in this administration, like Susan Rice, the national security director in the Obama administration, who President Biden picked as his director uh, for domestic policy. Is this an administration where healthcare policy is going to be run by the White House as opposed by the HHS? HHS? And what does that mean if that's the case? And what does that mean if you're in HHS? Well, thank you, Peter. You know, Dr. Shulkin hit the nail on the head, right? He said, secretaries establish a vision. The question is, whose vision? Is it, you know, Secretary Becerra's vision or is it the vision of the White House? In many respects, I think of healthcare policy with this administration as what the message will be four years from now, whether or not Biden runs for re-election. The party itself wants to say, you're better off you know, in 2024 than you were in 2020. So what does that mean for healthcare? It, does that mean that the White House is going to dictate the policy? It, in many respects, yes, right? It, it, it's one thing to get behind COVID. It's another thing to shore up the ACA or expand coverage. But in many respects, I think this administration does not want to run on healthcare again. It wants to run on other policies. So healthcare, to a certain extent, is stabilizing the country on healthcare, but not necessarily running on it as an agenda. You of all people, Peter, know that the HHS secretary can get sideswiped by um, events of the day. Um, we're already seeing border issues coming uh, to the forefront as they had uh, a few years ago. So notwithstanding that the White House might want to talk about COVID successes, revamping the FDA and the CDC, you know, there are other things that they might have to uh, deal with. Uh, that Secretary Becerra will be front and center on. You know, Secretary Azar had a critical role in the last uh, couple of years of the administration, but boy, he was not out in front on many things. Uh, the president obviously had a personality that chose to be out in front, but Secretary Azar, as a secretary often does, takes care of business. One thing I think to think about with this new administration is the role of OMB. We've been seeing that uh, there's been a little bit of trouble getting the director nominated and through the process for the, the head of the budget office. But OMB will play a critical role between the administration, right, the White House and the secretary in moving forward policy. Jennifer, thanks for that. Uh, I think you're really right about the whirlwind of activity uh, that you have to deal with every day. I think when you go in as a cabinet secretary or any senior official, you know, you put together a list of three or four things that you want to work on. And I always tell people, make sure there's a number five or number six, because those are two issues that you don't know what they are and they're going to fill your day every day. So let's turn real quick to 
one of the first things that this administration did. And this is this 1.9 trillion dollar COVID relief bill, uh, which Congress just passed on a barest of margins on a party line vote through a process called reconciliation. There's a lot of things in this bill, like the $1,400 checks to most Americans, but there are a lot of health care provisions that are crammed into it. More federal Medicaid funding to the states, um, increases in premium tax credits for the Obamacare exchanges, uh, elimination of the Medicaid drug rebate cap. Jennifer, these are pretty big deals, aren't they? And they just seem to be tucked into a big bill that most people think is just about $1,400 checks to everybody. You know, Peter, this bill was used uh, or was passed in, in a partisan fashion, as you as you indicated, but it wasn't passed in the middle of the night. Right. That's uh, that's kind of the, the habit in Washington is to get one massive bill done on Christmas Eve or as people are walking out the door to celebrate the new year. This bill was, you know, largely uh, open to discussion whether or not it was passed that way. These were not policies that were unknown to people. And frankly, there were some of them that had bipartisan support, including the Medicaid drug rebate cap. Um, in Washington, it, it goes without saying that people use a crisis to, um, to to make opportunities. And I think this administration was using the crisis of COVID to advance other parts of the healthcare agenda fairly successfully. Uh, you're seeing uh, even now with the Medicaid expansion opportunity given to states through the COVID bill, that Wyoming of all states who really has not had a legislature that has been supportive of Medicaid expansion Wyoming is moving legislation through the House and the Senate uh, to potentially add on to their Medicaid population um, in, in, in ways that uh, would not have been possible without this bill. So following up on this COVID Relief Act and the fact that it did go through mostly or largely a party line vote, let me follow up with something related to David. Democrats hold the presidency in both houses of Congress right now. Does that mean that the Republicans are out of the picture or irrelevant for the next two years or even four years? I don't think so. I, I think that, uh, as we're seeing and Jennifer said, we're seeing when things are passing, they're being passed by very slim margins along partisan lines. And two years goes by very fast. I think as most people probably listening understand that the incumbent uh, generally loses seats in the midterm election. On average, looking back, the incumbent party loses 26 House seats and five Senate seats. And you can see that just by losing five seats in this uh, midterm election that the House would flip and by losing one or two Senate seats, the Senate could flip. So I think that if you're looking beyond um, just these first two years, you're gonna have to try to find policies that gain some type of bipartisan support. You're gonna have to have uh, some type of working relationship with the Republicans if you're gonna look for anything other than really incremental or marginal changes from this point. The stimulus bill, um, you know, the two big things are that uh, the Democrats got their expansion of the subsidies, but they're only for two years. So in order to make that last, in order to make that permanent, they're going to need to have a working relationship with the other side of the aisle. And I think that's important. 
the Medicaid expansion, the 12 states that haven't expanded, uh, in the bill, they gave a 5% increase in the federal match. So they're using incentives. But once again, um, this has never really been a financial issue. This has really been a issue of political philosophy. So I do think there, there is an imperative to find some type of bipartisan path forward. Jennifer, you've been uh, on the Hill uh, on the majority side, and then when you're in the minority side, uh, is there anything that the Republicans can do or will do to influence health care policy, at least over the next two years before the next election? I think the Republican Party, whether it's the Senate or House, they have to decide whether they're better off being at the table or if they're better off with a bullhorn, right, complaining about things, uh, process or, or overspending. Um, I can't um, underestimate for the, the listeners the Trump effect, right? Uh, we may be done with Trump as a country or maybe in Washington, that's the mood, but Trump's not done with us. And Trump has a huge uh, opportunity to influence policy from grassroots level. Um, let's talk about the Manchin effect, right? Manchin is as much of a Republican in many respects as he is a Democrat, and he is extremely influential, pairing up with one or two other people to make major changes, uh, whether or not they're incremental, but certainly major legislative um, changes as he sees fit, whether it's in spending, infrastructure, healthcare. The Republicans have 20 seats up in 2022. Every election colors the current legislative process, the legislative cycle. Five of those seats are open, right? And those are not exactly in red states, right? Those are in Pennsylvania. Uh, we may have more North, North Carolina, um, Missouri. And so it's not really clear yet uh, whether Republicans win back the Senate, which is their goal, by being adversaries to health care policy with this administration, or if they're better off, again, in the election terms by working together. There's plenty of things to work on that have bipartisan support, drug pricing, value-based purchasing. We've even seen it with Medicare sequestration, that tiny policy that continues to nag at providers' uh, heels. You know, David, I'm wondering if you think that support for the ACA is the new Medicare advantage. If you remember, during the Clinton administration, uh, Democrats really shied away from Medicare plus choice, right? It was the, <laughs> the banal of, of the Democratic Party. But now, because of uh, the rise of Medicare Advantage plans and support among the suburbs, Democrats have been fairly supportive of Medicare Advantage changes over the years. Uh, Dr. Shulkin, what do you think? Is the ACA now the new Republican, you know, moderate support opportunity? I do think that there is some general agreement on that. I think that what's happening is, is that each end of the political spectrum is staking out their territory. The progressives just are going to introduce their Medicare for all plans tomorrow. And you're seeing Senators Kane and Senator Bennett introducing their Medicare X plan, which is really a moderate plan. It calls for a public option. Uh, interestingly, in the new bill being proposed, that's what's called the infrastructure bill, Biden has chosen not to put a public option in that new bill. What he's seeking is really just to make those Obamacare subsidies permanent. So you really see that there is a growing call for a middle ground and finding some area of consensus that everybody can agree upon. Jennifer and David, I think your points on that issue of does Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, become more like 
Medicare Advantage, which uh, you're right, Jennifer, there was a long time when Democrats didn't like that program. But now that you have so many people, beneficiaries who live in Democratic majority districts who benefit from Medicare Advantage because they have zero premium plans, they're dual eligibles, et cetera, that program has gotten bipartisan support. And when you have a state like Idaho that expanded Medicaid and then a state like Wyoming, Wyoming of all states, considering expanding Medicaid, then maybe the Affordable Care Act is here to stay for a long time. And any more discussions about repeal and replace really are not going to go anyplace anytime in the future. Thanks, David and Jennifer, for those great insights. In our next episode, Dr. David Shulkin and Jennifer Bell will give us their take of how President Biden fulfills or has to change some of his campaign promises on health care reform. This is Peter Banowitz. Thanks again for joining us for this podcast episode on health care policy direction in the Biden administration. Alvarez and Marcel. Leadership. Action. Results. <laughs>